0: Hello, my magical friends. My name is Ayumi. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And you're listening to Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Whether it's your first or 35th time listening, we welcome you to our space to celebrate magical girls from every corner of the world. So today is our very first extra episode for creators. So Again, this will be the only Friday where you can always expect an episode. So every week that there is an episode on Tuesday with a creator, there will always be another creator episode on that same week Friday. It was actually this particular episode and this particular recording that led me to decide to make this plan actually to uh, always have these kind of double creator weeks. Mostly just because, you know, if I had only once every four weeks That just really isn't a lot of creators to talk to, and doubling that up really does expand our horizons a lot. So, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Again, if this is your first time listening, usually at the top here, we would have some sort of news as well as some sort of a little segment about what I've been watching or reading. But because this is a creator episode, I will not be sharing that stuff. So, you can look forward to that on Tuesday. I'm very excited for our Tuesday episode. It's going to be the next Precure episode, and it's a big one near and dear to my heart, as all Precure seasons are anyway, but <laughs> yeah. So today's episode is mostly about Kevin Credo. He wrote the novel Ellery Moonbeam, written in a kind of light novel fashion for Tapes's premium program. Kevin reached out to me about talking about his work here, and he also just wanted to talk generally about magical idols in particular. So I do think this will be a very interesting chat about using the magical girl genre and then particularly magical idols, which we get into a little bit historically speaking in this as a kind of metaphor for other things in life. I would say that in terms of the history of Magical Girls, Kevin is definitely the person uh, so far with the youngest history, you could say, but that doesn't mean it's not valid. Maybe today will be your first time, dear listener, listening to something or learning about Magical Girls, and that's also valid too. And you know, we are, as always, open to people coming in at any time, whether you were born watching Magical Girls or started watching yesterday or even today. (laughs) But yes, so... Ellery Moonbeam is a novel set in the kind of light novel tradition, and the artwork so far looks very interesting. As of today, as this episode drops, we still don't have an exact date for release, um, so we're going to say definitely in the summer of this year. So I will add an update at the end of this little intro. To let you know in the future, I will just put it in post when we know an exact date for the release. And of course, in that corresponding week, I'll also add that as a new segment for the next episode after that information is out there. But for now, if you're not already part of Tapas' premium program, I recommend checking it out to get even more content. There are certainly other things that you might enjoy over there. Several of our past creators also use Tapas as a place for people to check out their work. And since we were talking about magical idols and discussing both the idol system as it pertains to reality and then how it is within the magical girl genre, I decided to give us a little bit of a bonus chat today. So this was very exciting to get because it was kind of a last minute thing and I was very very lucky that Alice was so kind to talk to me. So. Alice is a former idol, a very, very recent departure of the idol industry here in Japan. So I got to sit down and talk to her for a little bit about why she left the industry and her experience moving from the underground idol world to something a little bit more uh, legitimate with a contract. It's um yeah, it's a very interesting story. So I do have to give a warning for that conversation, we do mention eating disorders, and I wanted to give out just a small thing, I do have some links in the show notes for more details about her experience, and within those, something that she did not get the chance to touch upon in our chat, but is also very important to warn about, is the racism she experienced in comparison to her uh, fellow idols in her group. Unfortunately, yes, at the moment, she's not doing idle anymore, but you can still follow her and her antics on the Internet. She's very busy there. <laughs> and um, I also wanted to make one more thing um, clear. So uh, this is something that uh, has come up on occasion, but I haven't actually fully addressed yet. So that is also my bad. And this is something I'm trying to discuss more with future guests as well which is trying to remove ableist language from our vocabulary. So um, this is something that I think has been generally uh, discussed among a lot of people. I would say, I mean, I've been hearing about this for quite a few years now, but I think more recently I've seen it, especially in the podcast sphere, being discussed more. Just like the ways that we casually use a language that actually is quite harmful to people with disabilities that includes words like dumb or stupid, crazy, insane, um, and so on. So I am trying my best to remove that language from my own vocabulary, and I hope you can consider doing the same. And uh, it is something that I am discussing with guests moving forward. I just wanted to say, you know, there, there is some use of this language today, And I don't condone it, but at the same time, it was not something I had discussed in advance. So that's also on me. But I just wanted to get that out there so that my stance is clear. And hopefully moving forward, that language will be, if not completely removed, at least slowly removed from conversation. And I hope that you consider the same as well in your daily life. So um, with that, it's a very long episode today, so I really hope that you can enjoy this for the weekend. I've heard from listeners that they like longer episodes, so long as the conversation is good, and I think it will be. With that, I hope you enjoy today's discussion about Magical Idols and Ellery Moonbeam with Kevin Credo. So, today we are going to be talking with another magical creator, uh, writer of a Magical Girl novel. Can you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Kevin, uh, Kevin Credo. My pronouns are he, him, and I am a writer who recently got Greenlit to do a novel with Tapas Media in their premium program that is about magical girls and The novel actually focuses a lot not only on magical girls, but on magical girls when they get older, and magical girls if they were idols. So the novel is named Ellery Moonbeam, and the full name we're kind of looking at is Ellery Moonbeam, The Life and Times of a Latter-day Magical Girl. So here we're kind of going to discuss not only the history of magical girls and how they interact with idol girls but also some of the kind of really interesting intersections of music culture and idol girl history that kind of make for a really hopefully interesting discussion i hope that wasn't kind of too long of an introduction but um no
0: that's fine (laughs) it's okay thank you we're going to talk about idols but before we do that can you please tell us your history with the magical girl genre
1: yeah I come from a household just me and one older brother so we weren't ever really super huge into like magical girls in particular growing up. I mean we would watch an episode of Sailor Moon from time to time and a few other things. I was never particularly into magical girls growing up but recently one of the things that kind of drove me to like look at that for my most recent idea is I'm recently a graduate from college I graduated in kind of film and media and it's obviously nobody needs to say that it's like a really kind of strange time to be graduating from college with everything going on in the world Mm -hmm. and I was thinking about that for my next idea and then I kind of just got this idea of magical girls sort of representing this kind of fun idealized childhood and adolescence and then I was thinking about that in the context of what happens when there's kind of the transition from that sort of like fun dream space to adulthood and what's kind of the interesting aspects of the gradualness of that transition. And that's sort of what made me think about what it would be like to make a story about a magical girl who's in her 20s and who recently graduated college herself and is kind of in this interesting sort of time in her life. And I kind of use that as a setup to explore kind of these interesting themes about magical powers and kind of magical girl tropes within this sort of idol system. And that's sort of what led to Ellery Moonbeam.
0: Cool, cool. That's pretty great. So talking about, I guess, idols in general. So when we talk about magical idols, that really starts around the 80s. But idols were around before then, of course. So idols have been in the Japanese consciousness since about the 60s, the mid 60s. I guess just mostly fueled by one movie, which is really interesting. I believe the English title for it is The Chase, but it's a French-Italian film. It's also called Searching for an Idol. This movie was so popular at the time that the concept of idols became very big in Japan. And so female singers were kind of put on this particular pedestal. So it's not just about being able to sing, but it becomes also about you know, having the right look and uh, giving inspiration to the fans. The history of idols and the idol system in Japan is very interesting. And uh, of course, idols are not just in Japan. I would say even going back over into Europe and the US, we can see now there are singers that are very similar to the image of idols that we now have in Japan.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think one of the things is, That is really interesting about idols, especially in the Japanese context, is that idols and magical girls actually did have a sort of similar starting point where there was this piece of um, non-Japanese media that sort of sparked this very rich kind of public interest. As I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, that was with magical girls with the um, sitcom Bewitched Mm -hmm. and how that kind of influenced Sally the Witch and Secrets of Akko-chan, and then how those kind of works gradually started to evolve with Piero Studios, and then eventually modern magical girl shows like Sailor Moon and Cardcaptor Sakura. So it's a very kind of interesting way of looking at these particular pieces of media that are so kind of influential and then over time these systems and these whole genres started to kind of grow up around them and I think that sort of happened naturally in Japan at least with both the concept of musical idols and with magical girls as well so i think there's a kind of a really interesting convergence of those two and i think that those have been explored a lot in anime and manga but kind of the specific link between them and playing with that in the concept of the industry side of the idol system because like there can be completely like controlled by their agencies and this like marketing and other things and it creates this very kind of interesting and somewhat stressful at times pressure for a certain self-image and then combining that with magical girls is kind of a very interesting sort of setup to certain um ideas that i think i'm hoping to kind of play around with a little bit now so yeah yeah
0: exactly i mean even on their own we do see that interesting uh bounce back of influence between well in the case of magical girls it would be particularly the u.s and japan and then in the case of idols it's really france and italy and japan though yeah france and italy do also really love their magical girls yeah we can see that that also has bounced back into those countries because i guess especially magical idols uh, have come back and forth creamy mommy is a very big series and it was also very very popular in europe I don't know if it ever actually made it all the way over to the US, but I don't think so. Yeah. I think now it's more available, but at the time, yeah. not so much. Yeah. yeah. Did you watch or are, are you interested in any other uh, Studio Piero series from that era?
1: I've looked at a few Piero shows. I mean, I was mostly watching Creamy Mommy because like, that's the most famous one. And I think it definitely was the earliest kind of cementing of the relationship between magical girls and then idols and the concept of like the popular music industry i watched a few of them i think magical emmy was the name of one of them Mm -hmm. and then fancy lala and a lot of these shows also kind of like take influence from japanese idols in a certain way i think fancy lala was particularly trying to like emulate the success of creamy mommy before it and that kind of also goes back in a way to just the nature of, like, the television industry. Um, I'm, I'm really into animation, so I'm, I'm just kind of throwing this out as an example. In the U.S., you would have Hanna-Barbera that created Scooby-Doo, and then Scooby-Doo was a massive hit. And then you had other attempts by the same studio to kind of work with similar themes, which is how you get things like Jabberjaw and uh, Fangface. That work with similar themes and they have kind of similar setups, but they're also sort of directly influenced by the kind of juggernaut that came before them. So that was kind of an interesting thing to look at in the mm. anime industry and also with a sort of parallel about a decade earlier, or maybe a little more than a decade earlier, because um, Hanna-Barbera was kind of big in the 70s, right. and uh, Studio Piero was very popular in Japan in the 80s.
0: Yeah, I would say Creamy Mami probably is the first of the magical idols. I can't think of anything that came before her, but yet yeah, you can really see that those series very much play into idols, uh, so much as the main voice actress playing the magical idol sings the opening theme song and is also an idol in her own right throughout those series yeah that's another thing that becomes a really common thread not just for magical idols but for idol series in general that a lot of the voice actors also are idols in their own right yeah I think that's especially the case with a show like AKB 0048 which is completely derived from and based on the actual idol group, AKB 48. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: In one of the chapters in Ellery Moonbeam, um, it's not going to, it's going to be kind of a little closer to the middle of the novel. And this isn't really a huge spoiler or anything, but um, the magical girl group in Ellery Moonbeam is named Moonbeam. And one of the chapters is kind of focused on their debut concert. And I was looking at kind of AKB's sci-fi anime and i was kind of using that as a sort of like template Hmm. because like idol groups have certain concepts which are kind of like motifs or kind of like general storylines a lot of the time Mm -hmm. that kind of show as like a sort of base for the music which is really kind of the main part of their act and then i kind of used akb's setup with this sci-fi show as this semi self aware little fun thing that the uh, three girls in the group Moonbeam in Ellery Moonbeam kind of play with on their first concerts. So that was kind of a very interesting thing I was sort of working on.
0: Hmm.
1: But um, yeah, it's very interesting to kind of see the influence. And another thing, it's good that you mentioned that a lot of the voice actors for these shows are idols themselves. On that note, was Usagi's voice actress in the original Sailor Moon an idol?
0: Uh, Definitely in a lot of series, including Sailor Moon, a lot of voice actors do get to do things like character songs, but I wouldn't say she was an idol specifically, though. I mean, she does have like a small singing career, but it's not particularly in the idol system, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, back on track with the voice actors being idols themselves. That kind of plays into like the really kind of interesting cross media and kind of trans media elements of a lot of like Japanese idol media and magical girl media, and even like for example the tokusatsu um girls ex heroine series. Mm -hmm. You would have um, the show, which is kind of just this fun children's show, but then you'd also have, like, a mobile game, and then, like, a few albums that, like, come out, and it's this very interesting kind of, like, way that it becomes, like, a very transmedia franchise, and I think that in a lot of, like, non-Japanese media, there's, like, one main thing and there are a lot of, like, spin-offs. There's, like, a tie-in video game for a certain blockbuster movie. And the game gets forgotten about a few months after the release. But in Japan, the transmedia experience is something they're really into. And kind of creating both this real idol girl group that has, like, albums and things. And then also this kind of, like, fun show that comes along with it. The idol groups in like the Tokusatsu series are like secretly magical girls and then the albums themselves are kind of like secretly marketed as them being like also magical girls and just a normal idol group. In a lot of magical girl media, there's definitely this kind of like fun secrecy that kind of surrounds it. But that's another kind of interesting thing I was looking at with the uh, Tokusatsu series in particular.
0: So... I'm actually in the middle of watching Miracle Tunes right now in Japanese. And uh, in that series, the characters are in an idol group. So they're working every day as idols. At the same time, at every episode, they also are fighting against like this evil force or whatever, very much akin to a regular Magical Girl series. So there are definitely some things that are different because of the media, I would say, especially. But it's very interesting because that is the series that I can't speak for any later ones, but I know that the actors do produce music for later seasons. But as far as Miracle Tunes goes, their idol group is called Miracle Miracle and their CDs are real. So (laughs) when you buy them, they're under the same name. But I was trying to figure out if I could find any CDs for it in Italian because this is the series that has an Italian version. The story is the same, from what I understand, yeah. except it's just set in Italy with yeah. Italian girls, and I believe that they also have music you can buy from them as well. But I've had a little bit of difficulty finding that online. But
1: um, I, I wasn't aware of the Italian series. That's actually really interesting. It's kind of interesting to see how not like not just dubs, but like actual versions of a show are kind of like influenced for particular markets and like that kind of goes back to what i was wasn't there an attempt at like making a sailor moon series that didn't get picked up but it was like live action it was going to be live action and then
0: ah yes
1: i think they were going to have like animated parts in it like when the girls transform or something
0: yeah before it was licensed and picked up by deep studios there was I can't remember the name. It was another company that was trying to get its hands on it. Oftentimes, it is incorrectly attributed to Saban, but it's not from Saban.
1: I could see where the I could see where the comparison comes from with Power Rangers and everything, but yeah,
0: yeah. So if you ever want to search for it, you, it's often called Saban Moon for that reason, but it's yeah, again, it's not from them. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very interesting thing that yeah, there was a mock uh, trailer done up where they have girls and. I think, you know, if they had done that series, I'm sure it would have also been very successful. But, you know, at the end, it ended up getting picked up by a different company and we got what we got today. So
1: And what we got today was good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it is very um, interesting. But yes, uh, I would say that Sailor Moon is definitely this like point where a lot of things changed globally, especially, I think, for Americans Because Magical Girls, like we mentioned before, were already very popular in Europe. So a lot of uh, things were already being imported there, especially in Italy and France, which is probably why they decided to do Miracle Tunes in Italian. But they decided not to continue with any of the other series because they didn't think that it would be as popular. So I think it's very interesting that they did one and then they were finished. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: We kind of did skip all the way into like present day.
1: Yeah, I think we definitely kind of jumped around a little bit. So back to the concept of the history of idols and magical girls. Yeah. I mean, going over the history, um, one of the really interesting things, or at least when I was looking at it and kind of developing the idea for Ellery Moonbeam was... Um, and I think Creamy Mommy has a lot to do with this, with the intersection of magical girls and idol girls. But the idea that like magical girls are this sort of adolescent child wish fulfillment in getting these kind of magical powers and saving the world and all your friends have magical powers too. And then I think that the attraction to kind of put idols into that is because I think that idols are also kind of seen as a sort of like young adult ideal kind of fantasy to like have all these fans and perform and like just live this sort of dream and i think that there's definitely a sort of wish fulfillment element in both of those like also with just how popular they were in um society at the time that kind of made them kind of a very attractive natural pair to them Mm -hmm. um i do think that there's kind of an element with idols and particularly of kind of like growing up into doing that like i think in creamy mommy the main character is like normally 10 or 11 and then when she transforms into creamy mommy she also transforms into like an older teenager Mm -hmm. who's able to kind of experience more of like the career side of things as well in addition to this kind of like just fun sort of like wish fulfillment and also like just the secrecy and everything of like transforming and i just think that those are Another set of really interesting influences that kind of bring them together. And I think that's kind of what I try to explore in the novel a little bit, but also from the perspective of somebody who recently kind of aged out of the idol system a few years ago, and then kind of just this sort of fun satire of like the idol system while also playing into magical girl tropes. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely what I was trying to do. That's sort of a history. Are there any other like big parts of like the history of magical girls and Mm -hmm. magical idols that we could probably go into?
0: Well, right now, idols, uh, I guess idol series are very big, but most of them don't have any magic in them at all. Yeah. For example, there is Aikatsu is a very, very big series um, still going today. Having elements like in terms of uh, when the characters are changing costumes, they kind of look magical, but they're very intentionally not magical. Yeah. I would say that aspect is more sci-fi than anything else. Definitely. But that is also a kid's series. so. It's very interesting because the children's idol shows are quite different from the other idol shows with an older audience, uh, for example, like Love Live or Idol Master.
1: Definitely. And
0: um, all those series we've talked about so far have also only been about girls, but in more recent years now, male idols are also a thing. So they're also now idol series with men like Song of Prince and... Even just this year, there were more series that have come out. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of different shows now, for sure. Definitely. Yeah.
1: One of the things I definitely think are very interesting when looking at a lot of kind of the series in this realm are that I think a lot of like the tropes of magical girls themselves as we kind of think about the genre are very kind of influenced from like how non-japanese audiences see sailor moon when you ask people who like know about like sailor moon what the tropes of magical girl are they're going to talk about like the sailor moon transformations and other things that do have a precedent before sailor moon but um there's this kind of really interesting sort of gradual different and like how you were talking about with modern idol shows there's kind of some inspiration from magical girls but like the boundaries of the genre are really kind of fluid in a way that's interesting. For example, like the AKB sci-fi series is like very sci-fi, but it also has elements of magical girls. And I think that the way that like we look at the different genres is kind of broken down a little bit when you look at like the breadth of, like, just how much media is made that focuses on themes of idols and of magical girls, mm-hmm. it becomes um, kind of really interesting to kind of look at. And, I mean, even the pre-Sailor Moon shows also have, like, some sort of, like, other element to them. Like, Creamy Mommy has idols, or, like, card captor Sakura has, like, the element of her needing to collect these certain things rather than, like, having her own magic. Mm-hmm. And I think that just the boundaries of the genre kind of are very fluid in a way that kind of makes looking at them holistically very interesting. So yeah.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, in terms of looking at that connection, especially between magical girls and idols, it's so much that even in a series that we would call like maybe a non-idol magical girl series, they're often still idol characters. So like even in Sailor Moon, all the way to the very end, Minako or Sailor Venus, her dream is to become an idol. And so that's like a constant thing that is discussed. And then uh, in Precure, we've had several idol characters. There's uh, Udara and uh, Makoto from Doki Doki. Hug Precure. I guess it's kind of spoilers for that season, but the mid-season Cures want to be idols. They're kind of like just focus on the music at that point in their lives. At the same time, there are other characters who keep saying, oh, please be idols with us. And they're like, no, it's okay. We just want to like play guitar and sing by ourselves or whatever. But yeah, it is yeah. going to be their like eventual dream. Like they do enjoy performing on stage and stuff. So
1: yeah, they kind
0: yeah. of have that dream, but they're rejecting going into the system right away
1: yeah yeah in pre pre-care, they're always like just part of their team but like it's another kind of interesting little thing to have on their team that kind of combines it so that connection is definitely there in the consciousness I mean even when it's not the main focus Mm -hmm. of the series and I think that that's kind of just an interesting way of how it's looked at
0: and of course in real life there are older idols as well there is definitely a pressure to be younger Yeah. Because like, well, with uh, Tokyo Mew Mew, the new uh, reboot series that's coming out sometime next year, they actually had announced that when they were looking for the voice actors to play the five main characters, that they were also going to make an idol group of those characters who have now started to release a little bit of music as they are leading up to releasing the actual series. But it's very interesting.
1: Is that like a virtual band, like Gorillaz or something? Or is it like an actual like real stage actors like costumed as the characters
0: i wouldn't say they're exactly dressed as the characters but they're like a legitimate idol group so they released their first single already and uh, they're going to be releasing more music they have a music video and everything so they are working on that it's not just promotion for the actual series itself but it's very interesting because there are no idols in tokyo mew mew if you look at that series you wouldn't say oh There should be idols here at all. It seems like not connected at all, but that's kind of like a corporate decision, I suppose. When they were uh, making the call out for the auditions, the age limit was from elementary school to 30. Yeah. I think most of the girls are pretty close in age to each other. In the end, they kind of chose like a pretty solid age range, I suppose. But the fact that they were going, there were options like even for uh, elementary school kids to try to audition for these characters and become idols
1: which is kind of crazy but (laughs) i definitely think that has a lot to do with kind of some of the crazy things in the idol system as a whole where the agencies that have so much and i'm talking in like real life now Mm -hmm. where the agencies have so much like influence over what they want their groups to be and they're like planning years in advance for what kind of groups they think are going to be popular on what years and then there's just all this kind of like I mean, and some idols like are able to like create things on their own authentically, but at the same time, it can be in a way where someone's entire identity is kind of determined by how they're trying to do things. And that can be like really kind of complicated and um, really sort of harsh on a lot of kind of the idols that are trying to live up to this sort of standard.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, now, especially in it can like be even crazier than it was back then because now there's so much like social media kind of like hype around particular girls in um idol pop in different parts of the world and it's just this kind of really interesting stan culture basically Mm mm-hmm can compound some aspects of, like, performance and just your entire life becoming a performance. I know that's a little bit more on the serious end where things... And I think that Ellery Moonbeam kind of plays around with where like the fun expectations of being an idol kind of do intersect with some of those kind of more difficult kind of themes and kind of realities in the performance system in a way that's like kind of real and not like super intentionally like it doesn't show the girls being like super sad or anything. But I do kind of sense, or I try to show kind of attention there within this sort of like fun magical girl kind of concept to show these kind of more complex themes underneath. And that's sort of what I was trying to go at with a lot of the um, novel, especially kind of in the first few chapters when you're hearing about the main character Ellery kind of talking about her past as an idol in a three-girl idol group I just kind of play with those sort of melancholic emotions in kind of a modern context
0: I see that makes sense yeah you know when talking about idols it is very important to always acknowledge that it is a system that is not very good uh it's yeah there are a lot of problems
1: yeah yeah there are a lot of problems with um how girls are like forced to fit into this mold and they can't have an actual significant other. And um, there's sometimes where idols um, have like next to no free time and they're pressured to act a certain way or a, like have a certain body type or only act in a certain heteronormative way. That's really kind of like difficult for the girl and like how those anxieties kind of manifest over time, in addition to the concept of like all this hype that's around their group, that's sort of one of the things that you kind of might see sort of playing out with the anxieties of the different girls and the different groups that um, are shown in Ellery Moonbeam. And that's sort of one of the themes I was trying to use the lightness of kind of magical girls and the kind of humor of that to kind of give some sympathy to. So that's kind of part of what you can be expecting. Hmm. Yeah,
0: I've listened to quite a few different podcasts. that talked to idols or often former idols because yeah. they had to get out uh, talking about the system and so on. So um, I'm going to definitely leave those in the show notes for people to listen as well, because I think that they can speak on it better than either of us. But yeah, yeah, I think that's everything to talk about with uh, history, generally speaking. So let's talk a bit more about Ellery Moonbeam.
1: yeah. <laughs> It's a light novel that's about a little over 100,000 words. If any of our listeners are familiar with Tapas Media, what they do is they're an app and a website that kind of promotes short form kind of storytelling. They're very big in the webcomic space, but they also have kind of a novels division. So Ellery Moonbeam is going to be serially published over, depending on when this comes out, the next few weeks in kind of weekly chapters and it's going to be sort of short form episodes that you can kind of read that are going to be about 50 episodes total. And we're working on that. We have a cover illustration we're working on. And we also actually have a few, I don't know if I would want to call them light novel illustrations, but we have a few illustrations that are being commissioned by a graphic artist working in Japan, which is really cool. Um, the novel's inspired by the style of light novels, but I don't know if you would technically call it a light novel because it's not Japanese in origin. So um, light novel influenced is probably one of the best ways to discuss it. But Mm -hmm. um, it's a really interesting kind of project and I am so honored that the people at Tapas have kind of believed in it. And I'm really excited to kind of see where it goes going forward. Ellery Moonbeam is really kind of a concept that I first started thinking about in about October of last year. It came kind of as I graduated from college in this sort of, I mean, we're obviously living in a really chaotic time and we will be for the foreseeable future, but um, there's this kind of interesting moment after graduating college when you're sort of trying to figure out what you're going to be doing. The main character of um, Ellery Moonbeam is a girl named Ellery Loonberg. And the deal with her is in the world of Ellery Moonbeam, certain girls get magical powers that occur kind of in their adolescence, and then their magical powers sort of fade as they kind of get to their later teens, and then they kind of do as good as they can to um live a normal life after being idols because in the world all girls who go magical are sort of pressured into this like really rigid idol system and the main character of our novel ellery is a girl who is in her 20s and she recently graduated from college but she still has her powers and she's not an idol anymore And it's really funny because she's trying to like, grow up and be serious and kind of her dream is to kind of be a musician outside of the idol world. But she still has kind of all the hallmarks of being a magical girl. And in the world of Ellery Moonbeam, that's kind of most pronounced in that all of the magical girls, their hair turns blue after they become magical. And then after they stop being magical, their hair kind of goes from this bright blue to this sort of dark black with maybe a little hint of blue. And Mm -hmm. you can imagine this girl who still has these powers and still has this kind of visible blue reminder of her powers to everybody she sees, having these sort of kind of interesting concerns about how she's going to be growing up and about how that's going to affect the rest of her career and other things. And those are sort of uh, some of the fun things that Ellery Moonbeam starts out on. And um, as the novel kind of progresses, it talks about her kind of former relationship with the two other girls in her group, Bailey and Tiffany. Bailey went on to become kind of a cosplay influencer, It's set in a fictional world, but it's kind of set in a fictional version of Los Angeles and California. And I kind Mm -hmm. of play with modern themes of things like social media stands and cosplayers and influencers and how those kind of interact with themes of like magical girls and idol girls. When I look at like the various projects I've kind of written, this is definitely something that I think is made for this particular moment in a way that I think is going to be really interesting and that I hope resonates with a lot of like fans of that kind of sphere.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And then it talks about, I don't want to spoil too much, but there's Ellery and then there's her other former idol mate, Tiffany, and they kind of start to mentor the younger generation of magical girls. And um Tiffany doesn't really have her powers anymore, but there's this kind of difference in approaches and how much they want to push the girls and how much they want the girls to conform to this really kind of rigid stan culture expectation Um, and kind of how that goes forward and what each of their kind of aims are in doing that sets up some kind of really interesting scenarios that present themselves. A little more as you get a little further into the novel so it's a definitely a kind of very interesting look not only at just the base themes of what if magical girls existed in a kind of more realistic idol system but also the story of like these kind of three girls who sort of drifted apart and they went to college and they're kind of older now and they're starting to come back together and kind of what the interesting sort of character arcs there and the sort of um interpersonal kind of like feelings of these different girls are as they manifest this sort of crazy system and how that sort of results in some very interesting kind of situations is what I was trying to go for when thinking about the characters.
0: Hmm. Okay. So that's pretty cool. What are your influences both within and outside of magical idols?
1: The thing with Ellery Moonbeam, um, and I think you could probably see this in some of the chapters that you read is that it takes place in a world where magical girls and idols exist but there's also magical girl anime that exists alongside like the real life ones and they're sort of trying to tailor themselves to the sort of expectations that are put forth in anime and in manga beforehand Um, there's a lot of fun references to real life magical girl anime for example, whenever there's not Sailor Moon, but there's an anime in-universe called Sailor Galaxy that kind of plays with a lot of like the same themes. There's an in-universe version of Card Captor Sakura. Also, um, there's an in-universe version of Precure. And kind of all of these different influences kind of have their own little tropes that are kind of played with. There are also a few references to things like Madoka, and um, other things that I'm sort of playing with. Mm-hmm. I also do have a kind of a few slighter references to some of the tokusatsu series like Girls X Heroine. So it's kind of a very self-aware spoofing of a lot of different facets that kind of highlight the dynamism of the um, magical girl industry as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I come from a lot of other kind of influences as well. Obviously, there's a lot... In kind of, you know, being a recent college graduate and kind of thinking about like the sort of transition to working in the entertainment industry. I think there's a lot that's sort of a catalyst for some of the um, work in the series. I have a lot of influences. Like I think I said before, I was never super particularly into Magical Girls in particular when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are a lot of kind of interesting self-reflexive just shows about how media and communications work and i guess this might be a little more kind of abstract but in a way i think ellery moonbeam takes influence from certain ideas of the uh, media theorist who was very popular in the 1960s marshall McLuhan, who Mm -hmm. theorized a lot of different things about how technology and culture kind of impact the sort of psyche of society at large I don't want to butcher his work too hard because he's a very complicated thinker. But um, one of the things he sort of theorized that I thought was very interesting is that technologies are extensions of like the human person and the human nervous system, like how a um, car or a bike is an extension of the feet to transport somebody Mm -hmm. or a hearing aid is an extension of the ear. And one of the things that I do in Ellery Moonbeam is that early on it's established that when girls become magical girls, it's not their own power, but it's the byproduct of like this really super advanced data technology that is just such a big deal that even though it has this crazy side effect of making a very small number of girls transform into like these crazy beings that um that technology is just too vital and it's still there and i definitely think about how these girls' powers is kind of from the extension of their technology and then now that they have that they're sort of forced or at least heavily pressured to kind of live up to this standard of like magical girl series and magical girl anime that already existed in universe And this kind of idea of living up to like the standard of the anime and the other things, in addition to just living up to the craziness of like the idol system and of like social media becomes like these very interesting sort of themes of identity for these girls And how that kind of impacts with all the ways that, like, I see kind of global culture and other things changing in this sort of really interesting age of the internet and social media and, like, idol pop and stands. And I kind of play with that with Magical Girls in a way that I'm hoping can kind of be a very interesting sort of look at how some of those themes are kind of being presented.
0: Mm, Hmm. I see.
1: So that's kind of a look at how I'm sort of thinking about how this work is its own kind of original, hopefully interesting look at these girls who are magical girls. But it also does have this very, I hope, timely kind of feel about certain issues and how technology and fandom culture are sort of colliding in this really interesting way that impacts the girls' identities and how girls are seen and how show business functions in a way that I think can hopefully lead to some kind of very interesting reflection about where our society is headed and like what we can kind of do to make things a little bit better and what might happen if things kind of get even more crazy it's definitely a very interesting idea in that regard
0: Hmm. okay I see who would you say this series is for like who is the the target audience
1: I definitely think that it will resonate a lot more with people who are at the very least in kind of their older teens or, um, I mean, it's it's young adult in a way, but I don't think it, it deals like with these kind of older characters and, you know, their flaws and their anxieties and things that um, might relate a bit more to an older audience. It does have some kind of language used sparingly in it at times that might not be the most suitable for like a really young audience but it's definitely kind of this late adolescence kind of young adult when we're talking about books I mean young adult means everything from like nine-year-olds to like people in their 20s but it's definitely sort of a more 16 and 17 and up who are kind of old enough to sort of think about some of those issues
0: Hmm. okay and uh, it sounds like people would best enjoy it if they already have a general idea of magical
1: girls and magical girl history. Yeah, my editor was giving me some notes and she thinks that one of the really fun things in it um is kind of picking out the certain references and seeing how a certain phrase relates to a certain character in a magical girl anime or um, what an in-universe version of a um, real-life magical girl show is called and how it's kind of used. And there's definitely also an element of nostalgia around magical girls. I definitely think we're also living in an age where people are really kind of nostalgic and sentimental for things like Sailor Moon and even like the Deke dub of Sailor Moon that while it's not like there are other more accurate translations of Sailor Moon, I think there's a lot of kind of nostalgia for this sort of Saturday morning feeling um, and this sort of like old school thing that I think Ellery Moonbeam kind of plays with a little bit while also kind of dealing with some more kind of like complex, realistic issues. And I definitely think that like the fun of seeing these ideals and these like nostalgic happiness of these like shows dovetailing into like these personal relationships and like themes is definitely one of the things I'm trying to do that has a lot of fun with like the storied sort of tradition of the genre while also at the same time if not updating it, kind of showing it in a new context for a bit of an older audience that I'm hoping can kind of create this sort of really interesting synergy between kind of nostalgia and a more adult retelling of certain things. Mm -hmm. And of course, that kind of goes back to um, how even the name Ellery Moonbeam is kind of phonetically similar to Sailor Moon that I was kind of thinking about when I went through the name. Mm -hmm. another thing is that when each magical girl gets into her group she's given like a magical girl name bailey's name is bell and tiffany's name is farside and they have these sort of like alter egos on and off stage and that is kind of like an inversion of like magical girl transformations themselves That I think is another kind of interesting sort of identity thing that the story kind of tries to play around with. And you can kind of think about that when you're like looking at the certain things and sort of predicting how like some of those themes will play into their backstories and where they're going and what they're trying to get in a way that I think is really i'm really excited to see where this idea goes and i i really hope that people enjoy it and it's just so awesome to actually finally have this story that's like gonna be published publicly and um to see how people might react to some of the twists and turns in the novel i'm really looking forward to it
0: okay great uh have you done any other work uh both within or outside of this genre
1: Um, There are a few kind of illusions. A lot of my work is very, like, focused on the themes of storytelling and of creating media. Another idea I've made previously that's not publicly available yet is about, say, an opera singer in Paris or different ideas that kind of deal with the production of music or kind of creating a film or putting on a show in a way that I think is very interesting. There are some kind of similarities with some of the main characters dealing with similar themes, but this is definitely kind of my first foray into the specifics of Magical Girls. And it's also definitely my first idea that's going to be widely publicly available for an audience, which is a little bit nervous, but also really exciting.
0: And do you think that your approach to Ellery Moonbeam is similar or different to these works?
1: I think that Ellery Moonbeam is definitely made out of all the things I've written for a very kind of specific moment that we're living in. My other ideas um, might take place in a time period that's inspired by another time period or is set within another time period itself. And, um, whenever I get an idea, I kind of end up researching a whole lot about the specifics of the time and place that I'm sort of drawing off of, whether it's early 1900s Paris or modern day kind of music, idol pop, social media culture. I definitely do think that this idea is made for this specific moment and I hope can kind of resonate with audiences in this specific moment that kind of have thought and kind of have seen some of these themes and kind of are able to now look at them through the lens of this sort of tongue-in-cheek fun magical girl story.
0: Okay, I see. (laughs) Well, it sounds very interesting.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Your podcast was definitely a really good resource for kind of, especially those like opening episodes about the history of magical girls, a very kind of interesting listen and definitely very um good for the uh, research that went into it. So it's really an honor to kind of have been a guest on the podcast.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad that you found it very helpful. Great. I do feel that generally there's still a lot of stuff missing from that history that bothers me, but.
1: Even as they were, I think they were very informative. But yeah, it's definitely Magical Girls aren't as linear as you might think of just um, Sailor Moon. There's a lot of kind of ins and outs. And that is that gave me a lot of kind of material to kind of think about and definitely work with when I was making this idea.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I would say that, you know, you can think of like the history of Magical Girls as being kind of like a tree And idols is also kind of like another tree that's next door. And so there are some branches that are starting to cross more and more, but that's definitely (laughs) a good way of
1: looking at it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Great. So I think that's everything I have to ask about the series. Uh, You've given us a lot of information, I guess, before we finish off here, do you have a magical persona or have you ever imagined a magical persona for yourself?
1: Not that I can think of that would be, um, That'd be interesting, because, I mean, in a way, all of my characters are sort of reflections of myself. I can see myself, in a way, in Ellery or in Tiffany, Um, and I definitely do put a lot of myself into all of my characters and all of my projects, but um, that's kind of how that that would be.
0: Yeah, I I do think it's interesting because, um, like, as you mentioned before, now, idols in their origin are very much female-centric, but these days we do have male idols, so... I do find it very interesting that in your universe, there are no magical boys, it seems like.
1: Yeah, there aren't any kind of explicit magical boys in the um, context of it. But that is definitely, there is a lot of um, interesting kind of media that does play with those themes of um, the relationship between like magical boys and magical girls. I think on Tapas, actually, there's a very popular comic that's about a sort of magical boy uh, dealing with like gender issues and other things. And I think that that's one of their bigger um, webcomic ones. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely a lot of like both Western and Eastern properties that do deal with those themes of like gender identity and other things and how that's kind of like explored within this like genre of magical girls. There's a lot of really interesting kind of ways that the different parts of those identities are played with. Also, in terms of like age and things, you definitely do have sort of interest in um, older magical girls and other things. um, There was that magical girl friendship squad show Mm -hmm. on sci-fi that I haven't watched. I mean, I read a lot of people's opinions on it and other things. Um, And um, that's one take on older magical girls and what it would be like if you played with those tropes with an older audience. But um, I think mine kind of deals a little bit more with like themes of what it's like to grow up and kind of shedding this sort of like adolescent fantasy and kind of holding on to it and sort of having that history kind of play into your present more adult self. And I think that there's a lot of kind of way that I hope that that can like, touch people in that period of their life or thinking about those issues. And I'm just really looking forward to seeing what people think and where the idea goes from here.
0: Okay, great. So Kevin, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast to talk to me about Ellery Moonbeam. So I know at the moment it's not up quite yet, but at least where can people find you and follow you so that they can get the latest news about when this is released?
1: Um, I'm not too active on like social media or anything, but I would definitely say go to Tapas, go to the app. If the novel isn't out when this episode drops, it will at the very least be coming out really soon. It's going to be kind of serialized over the course of summer 2021. And just, I would say, read the novel. That would be really awesome. Um, And kind of just share it online. If anyone ever drew fan art of the novel, that would make my week. That would be totally (laughs) awesome. But um, just kind of read it, share it, discuss it. I think on Tapas, there's kind of a forum where people discuss certain series or things. So you can definitely kind of give a little traffic to that if you wanted to support the idea but just kind of give your thoughts to it. Um, if you like it, share it. And I'm just really excited to see where it goes. It's going to be in the premium program. So the episodes are unlocked with ink, which is this um, microtransaction currency that's used for Tapas app. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of look at that. That definitely helps because um, I have a few different ideas and I'm trying to get into writing for animation. So any kind of support and exposure on that end is really kind of beneficial for me at this point but just kind of look at the book discuss the book and um we'll see where it goes and i'm just really excited to see what comes out of it
0: great thank you very much again for talking to me today
1: (laughs) great great it was a great discussion thank
0: you yeah and uh, i hope you have a good rest of your day
1: (laughs) you too you too
0: Okay, so uh, we just finished listening to a creator episode about Ellery Moonbeam and uh, magical idols in the whole genre of magical girls, and so I wanted to give a little bit of extra context for everyone, so I thought I would go to an expert. So can you please introduce yourself?
2: Okay, hello everybody. My name is Alice, and my pronouns are she, her, and I used to be an idol.
0: Yes, so... um, now, I I have been following you on Twitter, and I have heard about uh, your experiences as an idol uh, when you were still, I guess, independent. I don't know if that would be the right mm-hmm. way to say it. Uh, yeah. And then, was it last year that you got signed up to an, a company? Yes, last October. Wow. So I'm going to leave a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to listen to more of your experiences in your independent group but um, for now uh, I guess as a way to continue the story I was wondering if you could tell this audience about that transition and your experience there.
2: Okay yes of course so I started out as an independent idol so I was the manager I was the leader I basically did everything and while we were performing as that group we ended up being scouted by an agency and I actually did some research on the agency and they had a group previously. And they were incredibly popular. They had a really good run. They had um, a lot of fans. They were very, very like successful. So we thought, okay, well, this sounds like a safe agency to sign with. And you know, we were looking for an agency at the time because the workload was just way too much for me. But yeah, so we ended up going into this agency. So this is just my experiences with this specific agency. I don't want this to be a comment on the entire industry as a whole because obviously that's not it. Sure. But it wasn't a great yeah. experience. <laughs> <laughs> to put it lightly, so um, so this agency, their um, group before us, because they were so popular, I think they just wanted to create another group and just kind of piggyback off of that success. But they did it in a way that seemed like we were trying to be like a cheap remake or like a cheap copy of that group. So hmm. some of the red flags that came up to begin with is... Before we'd even debuted under them, so we needed to have some meetings and we needed to have costume fittings and that kind of stuff. There's a lot of things to do. And they would send me as the leader on like wild goose chases around Tokyo. I feel like it was to see how far they could kind of take it before I got angry. So Mm. they would tell me, okay, can you meet me in Yoyogi at 7 p.m.? And I was like, okay, so the day comes and I'd send like a little message beforehand, like just making sure everything's still okay for today, Yogi, at 7pm, I'd get no response. Then all of a sudden at 6pm, they're like, we're in Yogi, where are you? And so I be like, uh, well, you said seven, so I'm just going to leave my house now. And I ran to Yoyogi, and then I arrived at Yoyogi, and they said, okay, so we're going to find a cafe near to the dance studio that you guys always practice in. So I walked towards the dance studio. Then they said, actually, we're going to go to this cafe over here. Please come here. And they sent me an address to a random cafe that's not even anywhere near where I was. This is exactly how it happened. Mm. And in the end, after sending me on this like this wild goose chase all around like Yoyogi, Kitasando, all these different places, I finally arrived at the cafe, and then we had a meeting. And I feel like that was the first red flag, because maybe if I'd have stood up for myself and said, uh, you said seven, so I'm going to be there at seven, sorry. Or said, I don't know, if I had have said something, maybe they wouldn't have felt like that's how, you know, starters they mean to go on, because they really messed around the rest of the time. Yeah. And then the songs that they gave us and the outfits that they gave us were covers of their old group. So the outfits we got were exactly the same outfits, but just in different colors. Wow. <laughs> oh my God, it was terrible. Mm. Yeah. um, And like the old group was popular. So it's obvious what they were doing. Right. Like, so our fans that we had at the moment were going to be angry. And the fans of the old group are going to hate us for trying to take the place of their group that they liked. So I really mm. don't know what was going through their head. They wanted us to cover their songs. They didn't give us any original songs. And before we debuted, I messaged the guy in charge. And I said, I would like at least one original song because doing just covers of this group that doesn't show any form of like our own flavor it doesn't show anything like that how are we going to get new fans our old fans are going to be mad the old fans of this group are going to be mad is there anything you can do Mm -hmm. and originally I sent the message to the female manager because I felt like she was like more personable I guess anyway Mm -hmm. big mistake because (laughs) she said hmm I understand your feelings But actually, you're terrible because when we had dance practice the other day, you didn't stand up when I entered the room. And and you're also bad because of this reason. And also, you're terrible because of this reason. And I was like, wow. Okay. So I sent the same message to the guy that is in charge of everything. And I added on a little bit that said, if not, I would like to quit. (laughs) Because I'm not not wasting my time with this. And he was like, okay, have an original song. And he gave us a terrible. And again, I feel like this was also part of their strategy. They would give me what I wanted, but they'd give it so badly. They'd give me such a terrible experience that it would make me regret even asking for something. Mm. And I feel like that could have been like a an underhanded strategy is to make me stop asking for things because that happened maybe two or three times. Yeah. So the original song they gave us was really bad. It shouldn't have been out of production, honestly. And then when we came to perform it, they played it a key down. Wow. So the two other members were like singing off key and it was, I mean, me as well. Like when the chorus came, I'd be like, uh, uh, and that was at our debut live, by the way. Oh so my goodness. That's... That was um, something. I can't even imagine, like, doing
0: that. It seems like literal... And I can't understand why they would want to sabotage you all like that.
2: Yeah, exactly. It was so confusing. But the thing is, everything they did up until then, even if they didn't mean to sabotage, all of the actions they did was leading to sabotaging the debut of this group. Because my main regret with my first group was that I didn't hype up our debut enough. I didn't gather everyone's attention for the debut. I just kind of was like, oh, we're performing at this place. Come hang out. So I was like, yeah, well, this time we'll have a proper debut. They kept the whole thing a complete secret. Wow. They have like a live venue that is run by the agency. They wanted us to debut on the three-year anniversary of that venue. And they wanted us to be a complete secret. They didn't promote it. They didn't say anything. Nobody knew that we were going to be, like, our fans knew we were going to be re-debuting, but they didn't know the concept. They didn't know the agency. They didn't know anything. They just knew the date and the time. Yeah. And, you know, the worst thing was that because it was a three-year anniversary of the agency's thing, like, um, one of the most popular members from their old group came to do a special performance, and she was on directly before we were. And she gave her performance, and the crowd's all hyped up. She has so many fans. Uh, The group's name was Embrace, so I'll refer to it as Embrace from henceforth. Mm -hmm. So she was like, oh, by the way, Embrace's debut is next. Everyone look forward to it. So everyone's like, hmm? Why did she mention that? Why did she bring... And then all of a sudden, like um, the first notes of the song... I think it was the most popular song of the old group started playing. So everyone's probably thinking, oh, my God, all the members are coming back together for like one special performance for three year anniversary and three random foreigners walk out on stage. And everyone's like, "It." Eh? wow, <laughs> it was such a nightmare. But like, I mean, that's, you know, that's a personal experience for me sure. talking about the agency and the things that they used to do. Like sending me all around Tokyo to see how much power they had over me, or every time I would bring up a problem, they would then combat it with a reason why I am the problem. And then at the end, like instead of listening to the other members' problems, they then said, you know, if you have a problem, just tell Alice. She'll deal with the problem. I'm like, I actually entered this agency because I didn't want to be the manager anymore and you're still trying to make me be the manager. Hmm. It was really upsetting it was very very difficult like what's the point of handing over all of our freedom to these people if they're not actually going to listen to our problems and take responsibility you know Mm -hmm. so if the other members had problems they had to come to me as the leader and then also with scheduling honestly the worst part about um, managing my own idol group was doing everyone's schedules making sure like who's free on which days to do practice to do lives that kind of stuff Mm. and so we had um you know the application time tree I think so. Yes, I've heard of it, yeah. All okay, right, so everyone puts in their free days in their schedule and it shows up across the whole thing and you can see what days everyone's free from what time. Mm-hmm. And so originally we started using that and it was really, really easy because we could see who's free what day, who's who's busy and until what time are they busy. But for some reason, halfway through, they said, you know what, actually, just send all of your schedules to Alice and she will tell and she will tell us your availability. Like, that's... Why? <laughs> yeah, that's really strange. It was honestly bizarre. Like, instead of this thing where we can all see each other's availability, you want me to be the middleman. They were just passing off all of the responsibility onto me, but I was getting none of the rewards of being in charge. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So anyway, fast forward to um, the end. I had kind of had enough, um, not to go too deep into things, but I was having a bad time as an idol. I had kind of developed an eating disorder. Yeah, so that's the main reason why I quit idol. So I sent a very long, it actually wasn't that long, like, you know, a couple of paragraphs of a message to the guy who is in charge of everything, telling him, I don't have any confidence in the direction this group is taking because all of the other songs that he'd introduced to us were all, like, terrible. And originally he said he wanted to make us a dance-based group because most of the members are really, really good at dancing, but the dance, like the choreographer he introduced was terrible as well. So we were like, what are you trying to do with this? Like at one point I was like, is this company a money laundering scheme? Because <laughs> there is no way, like they're actually trying, hmm. like it's because we had, this entire thing is just me ranting. I'm really sorry. No, uh, no, this is exactly what I wanted you to
0: do, so it's okay.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. But like I said, this isn't a comment on the entire industry, but this is what happened to me last year. So Mm -hmm. when I was independent, I made a lot of good contacts with events organizers. So When you are not signed to a massive major label, you will debut and you will do all of your um, lives and concerts in big group lives. So there'll be like, you know, like 10 other groups performing. And Mm -hmm. that's good because it means you can steal their fans and make them your fans. It's really good. But if you have, you know, um, a really big agency, then you don't really have to do that because they'll get your fans for you. But, you know. Yeah. So I made a lot of good contacts with events organizers and people who own live houses and concert halls and that kind of stuff. So when I was about to re-debut, I emailed all of them saying, you know, thank you for all of your help and stuff up until now. This is the email address of my new manager. If you have any events you want to invite us to, then please email them. And they were like, okay, thank you very much. Good luck. And they all emailed my manager only to be ignored by my manager. I had a couple, maybe five of them email me saying, I messaged your manager, but they never replied and they ended up losing all of my contacts. And then, in n- not promoting the events properly and I don't know, just really bad mismanagement, they ended up losing like most of the fan base that we'd built up up until then, because we had been active for almost a year at that point. So we had, you know, a decent fan base, and they lost most of them with just terrible, terrible management. So obviously, I've lost all of my contacts, we've lost all the fans. I have very, very bad problems at that point. And I have no confidence in the future of the group. So I tell the manager, I would like to quit because of all of these reasons I just stated. And he messaged me back very, very quickly. And I was like, oh, that's a very quick response. Because all he was doing was telling me that actually it was my fault that the group was failing and didn't have any fans and couldn't perform at other events. Uh, not them for losing all of the fans and losing mm-hmm. all of my contacts and, you know, mistreating them. So now they don't want to sit their events. But he was like, actually, it's because you have a really bad personality, and it shows. Everyone can see that you have a bad personality. So I have so many people messaging me like, oh, she seems like such a bitch. So she- I don't want to go and watch your group perform. Wow. I mean, if that was true, why didn't you tell me earlier so I could fix any of these mm-hmm. things? I mean, like, I don't know if I say bad things sometimes, if you tell me then, then I can never say it ever again. So the fact that he was only bringing it up then, I was like, mm, yeah, is that really true? Is is that what happened? And then they also sent an email around to the other members saying Alice is terrible and she's going to quit and she's going to you know leave this company behind. And actually, you know the reason why the group is failing is actually because she's terrible. By the way, are you guys going to quit? Because, I mean, you can quit if you want to. We'll just get new members and replace you. So if you want to mm. quit, tell us now. So again, not a great management. So I quit. They should have let me have a final live. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tried to cancel all of the um, the concerts that we had planned. After that, I think this might be a British saying, but they were throwing their dummy out of the pram. You know when babies get angry and they throw like their pacifier out. I've like, never
0: heard that expression before, but I love it. <laughs>
2: oh my god! <laughs> okay, so when a baby's angry, it's like I'm angry and it throws out. Okay, so yeah, yeah. they threw their dummy out of the pram. If they'd have allowed me to have a final live, all of my fans could have come. I could have said goodbye and thank you to my fans properly. They would have made money. I would have been able to have, you know, that emotional closure. But no, they were like, no, you can't have anything. But then after the other members basically begged for me, they allowed me to have a final performance, but they didn't let me say that it was my final performance. Mm. It had to be a top secret. So I had my final performance on December 28th, and they didn't allow me to announce my departure from the group until January 16th or something. Mm. And, you know, like, I actually held my silence about the treatment that how terrible they were to yeah. me for maybe two or three months yeah yeah and then I tweeted about it because you know I, I wanted some closure on it I wanted to let everyone know that I mean I'm sure everybody knows that the idol industry isn't all smiles and ribbons and happy stuff like i yes. I'm sure all of us know you know there's like every industry is like that there's definitely some dirt underneath the surface like I said I didn't want my experiences to define the entire industry because, you know, I mean, especially since I was in the underground idol, it's very, very different between like underground idol and the really, really big ones like AKB and that kind of stuff. I mean, obviously there's still horrific things that go down there, but you know, I think that everyone knew. So when I came out with my experiences, a lot of them were like, hmm, yeah, I kind of collected it. I knew that things like that would happen. But then also some people were like, she's just complaining about the industry because she didn't get famous. I'm like, <laughs> it's not it, but okay. Yeah, like, I mean... As someone who
0: has, I can't remember when I first started following you on uh, Twitter, but I've been following you for a while and I've seen you work so hard to like promote and you know, you're doing like multilingual promotion, trying to get as many people yeah. as possible to come to your shows and everything and like reading all the things that happened was just so um, shocking. Yeah. I'm sure part of it also, there's definitely a level of it being that you know they're an agency dealing with three non Japanese mm-hmm. idols. I would not be surprised if, like, they didn't take the same approach with Japanese idols if they are dealing See, with their them, so. old
2: group had one Chinese girl and one Korean American girl, so they were like, It's an international group, like that's mm-hmm. how they kind of promoted it. So, with us as well, they wanted us to be like an international sure. group, but like, it was an international group of Asians like they were all east asian like visually so i think it's like very different in the way that you need to promote it and very different in the type of fans that you need to promote it to so maybe they didn't understand that and also maybe because you know we didn't like bam take off immediately they were like you know actually we don't care anymore about these guys we don't care about these guys who are these guys so (laughs) you know I mean, I do think that there was definitely an element to our parents aren't going to go and knock on their doors if they mistreat us like, you know, other Japanese girls. But at the same time, we're not going to take the same kind of terrible treatment that a lot of these young Japanese girls take. Right. So, I mean, I had a bad experience, but there are definitely people who have worse experiences because at the time, I mean, you know, I'm a grown woman, you know, I'm in my 20s and the other members are also in their 20s and two of us already had almost a year of being idols under our belt. So, you know, we're not these like 13 year old Japanese girls who will do anything they're told. So I do feel like we kind of dodged a small bullet with that. But at the same time, due to, you know, our status, I think that probably they didn't try as hard which is dumb because like I was doing a great job and then they ruined it. So mm.
0: yeah. Yeah. So after all this, you decided to finally quit trying to be an idol altogether, which uh-huh. um, I'm sure has disappointed people for sure. But you know, your yeah. mental health is so much more important.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've quit the industry, but um, some of my friends in the industry that are still like working as idols, like they might, like maybe they'll call me for their birthday performance. I might make appearances, but I'm not going to go full on into it again because I can't I can't deal with that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I do think, you know, you're a great dancer and singer and it, if it does feel like a waste. <laughs> um, it feels like a waste for sure that like, you know, there's talent all over the world and, you know, especially now more and more, I think there's definitely more non-Japanese people coming to Japan to enter the industry. So I mean, not right now no not right now yes (laughs) but like (laughs) generally speaking (laughs) yeah Mm. yeah no all the ones that are working now you've all been here but um yeah it's definitely something that I I don't know when it's going to happen but I do feel like there's probably going to need to be some sort of change there for sure
2: Mm, I mean you know we do hope so yeah yeah uh, Alice thank
0: you so much
2: no problem
0: Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. And where can people find you and follow you online?
2: Okay, so I have a Twitter where I, I'm i very loud. So <laughs> my Twitter, I don't know if you'll put it in somewhere for me, but it's yes. underscore uh, sh1. O P A N, it's supposed to be Xiopan, which means salty bread. It's my favorite type of bread from the bakery. Mm -hmm. And I am also on Instagram on basically the same name, the same handle, but instead of the one, it's a real I because the name wasn't taken on Instagram. You know how it is. And Instagram, I don't really post, but I do post a lot of stories. So anyone who is interested, please check it out. Great. Yes, I will link to both in the
0: show notes. And yes, thank you again for talking to us today. Yeah. (laughs) No problem. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Sparkle Side Chats with Magical Girl Ayu. Please subscribe, rate, and review if you like it, and don't forget to tell your friends about the show if you think they'd be interested. If you use social media, don't forget to use the hashtag Sparkle Side Chats when talking about and sharing the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Magical Girl Ayu, spelled A-Y-U, And you can find me at Ayushino's, A-Y-U-S-H-E-K-N-O-W-S. You can also email us at sparklesidechats at gmail.com. Let us know if there's a topic you want covered or a fan or creator you want to hear from. Show notes can be found on your platform of choice or at anchor.fm slash sparkleside. You can also join the Discord for this podcast and talk about Magical Girls 24-7, often chatting directly with me and both previous and upcoming guests of the podcast. Just contact me for an invite link anytime, or, if you're shy, you can get a public invite every week after the latest episode is released. If you can support the podcast financially, you can buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com slash with Kofi membership tiers, you can get bonus content, announcements about episode topics, and your name read aloud on the podcast. Original podcast music is by Hazel. You can find her on Twitter at @twinkleparks. Thanks again for listening and remember, you are magical.